Good morning. And it's good to be here this morning, just in the presence of the Lord and just the way He is, just by His grace, chosen to just bless us with His presence. And I told the crowd this morning, I feel a little out of place up here in all this beautiful Christmas wonderland stuff up here. I feel like I need a little elf hat on or something with jingle bells to <laughs> kind of go along with it. Don't worry, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, like that hat right there. You keep it. I don't want it. <laughs> Looks good on you. <laughs> Wouldn't, no, it's okay. I'm good. Thank you, RJ. <laughs> I like to say I'll get you back, but I don't know how to do that from here. RJ's got the most powerful position in this whole church. I mean, I'm at his mercy constantly. He can make me look good or bad. And uh, uh. <laughs> All right. Jeremiah chapter 31. If you have your Bibles, let's go there. We're actually in the middle of a conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples that uh, we started looking at last week in Luke chapter 22. And there's something he said in there in verse 20 when he took the cup and he said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then I dropped a big statement on you at the end that I said that we were going to look at in more depth today. And that is the fact that the new covenant was made not primarily between us and God, but between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And I said, that, you know, that's something that you don't hear a lot about in the church, if at all. But we need to hear more about it because this changes everything. Um, when well, we were in worship just a while ago, I was thinking about this and, and the message this morning. And a lot of times when, when you present something new, present something that maybe that you know a lot of people haven't heard of before, may not be used to before, there's a little apprehension in that because you don't, number one, know how people are going to receive it. And it's also kind of a precarious place to be when you know you don't have just tradition to fall back on or what people are used to to kind of fall back on on that. And I was sitting there during worship thinking about all this and I just had the thought, God, what if I'm wrong? And I heard the Holy Spirit just answer immediately back, what if you're not? And I thought, well, if I'm not, then this changes everything. He said, you're right. It does. And there's some things that I want to change in people's lives this morning. Yeah, we don't have tradition and what we're used to to fall back on, but we do have God's Word to fall back on. And that's what we're going to stand on this morning. It's so good. And so even though we're not really leaving the uh, conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples, in Luke 22 at the Last Supper, we're actually going to start with the text that speaks directly to this. Jeremiah 31, we're going to start with verse 31. So let's all stand together to receive what God has for us today. 
Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of it all. God, as we just sat there, just singing that song, over and over and thinking about what, God, this truth that you have for us. Lord, this, this shows us here, God, why you are worthy of everything. God, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how bad things may seem around us, God, you are worthy of all our praise and all our worship. In all our obedience, and all our, our whole life, God, you are worthy of everything that is due your name. And I thank you that we get to see an example of why that is true this morning. So, Lord, I pray once again that you would open our eyes to see you in this truth for what you really are, God. And, Lord, that this would change everything for somebody this morning. Jesus, be glorified in everything that is said. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, I can tell you right off the bat that you won't find one verse in the Bible that just comes right out and says directly, word for word, that the new covenant was between God the Father and Jesus the Son. But that doesn't mean that we can't find that truth in Scripture based on other texts. You know, we do that with a lot of things. Uh, a lot of beliefs that we have and things that we know to be true. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the main tenets of our faith that we adhere to, the belief that God exists as three individual persons yet united as one. But there isn't one verse in the Bible that just comes right out and says that word for worth. But it's a truth that we infer based on many other texts. There isn't a verse in the Bible that directly says that Jesus endured complete separation from the Father when he was dying on the cross. But again, it is a truth that we infer from the scriptures based on things that Jesus said on the cross and other texts that talk directly to the consequences and result of sin. And so in order for something to be true, it has to be found in the Bible but not necessarily exactly word for word. Some truths we can see just based on what other verses are saying about it and and supporting it and speaking to it, and such is the case with the new covenant being between God and Jesus. So let's look at some of them and see what all this means for us. This text we just read in chapter 31 is one of the most significant passages in the book of Jeremiah. It's a text that's quoted at least eight different times in the New Testament, and it is one that comes as close as you will find 
to a verse coming right out and saying word for word that this new covenant is between God and Jesus. But it says it in a real uh, kind of a metaphorical way. And I'll show you how. First of all, it's important to realize that much of the Old Testament prophecies do contain a lot of metaphor and symbolism. And the reason for that is not because the writers are trying to be all poetic and mysterious. It's because these were, were men with finite human brains trying to describe something infinite and so far beyond human comprehension. It's kind of like the way that American Indians first tried to describe the time when they first saw a steam locomotive train going across the plains. There had been nothing that they had ever experienced before that come close to anything like this. And so they had a very limited vocabulary to work with. And so the best way they knew how to describe it was going back to the village and saying, I've seen something like I've never seen before. And they're like, what is it? And they said, I don't know. It was like this iron horse running across the plains with smoke coming out of its nose at the top of its head. Well, that's not exactly what that was, but that was the best way they could describe it based on what they had to work with, the, 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 the framework that they, of all their experiences. And so that's what you'll find with much of the Old Testament prophecies, especially with Revelation. I mean, you got John describing three-headed monsters coming up out of the sea and stuff. Well, that was a, a finite mind trying to describe something so infinite that was... That was what he had to work with. And in verse 31 here, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, on the surface here, it seems as if the new covenant is just going to be made with the same group of people that the old covenant was made with. The old covenant was between God and Israel with Moses being a representative of the people. And now it appears here that God's going to just make this new covenant again with just that same group of people. But we know that the new covenant didn't include, doesn't include just those who were Israelites. All who put their faith in Jesus are included in the promise of the new covenant. And so this has to mean something other than what we read on the surface here. So what could Jeremiah be meaning by this? Well, like I said, whenever we read something specific in the Old Testament, we got to understand that it's ultimately not about that specific thing or person, but it's about something bigger, something much greater. In the Old Testament, Israel was the specific race of people whom God chose for himself to be his representatives on earth. But Israel represents the ultimate people that God would choose for himself to represent him on earth. And they would include people of all nations and all races. It was never about a physical nation. It was always ultimately about a spiritual nation. It was never just about people who are related by the blood of Abraham. It has always ultimately been about people who are united by the blood of Christ. And so the first thing in your notes there is that Israel here represents the church. Jeremiah was prophesying about what was to come, what was going to happen through Jesus. You and I are now living in the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. 
We are the ones that Jeremiah speaks of here. And so you might say, well, there you go. That means that this new covenant is between God and us. Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we get to receive all the blessings and benefits of this new covenant, but no, in the sense that we are required to feel, to fulfill any sort of binding oaths that this covenant is made up of or, or requires. Notice that Israel is not the only player mentioned here. He says, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now Jeremiah is getting a little more specific. What could Judah represent? Well, turn back to Genesis chapter 49 for just a minute. I want to show you something that is really neat. In Genesis 49, Jacob, whose name was also Israel, is at the end of his life. And he's gathered his 12 sons together to speak a blessing over them. And he he, he addresses them each individually, one by one, starting with the oldest and going all the way down to Joseph. And he gets to his fourth son, Judah, and he says this, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Who did Jacob just describe here? Jesus. He just described Jesus. He said, all shall praise you and bow down to you. All shall be obedient to you. He says, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. And he says, the scepter will not leave your hand, which means your reign, your rule will reign forever and ever. And then he calls him a lion, which is very key because Revelation 5.5 refers to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of what? Judah. Revelation is saying, essentially, Jacob's talking about Jesus right here. He is prophesying about the one that was to come from the tribe of Judah. Last week, we looked at the five parts of a covenant. And there were that you had representatives of both sides. You had a divine side and a human side. Number two were the binding oaths. And then you have promises of blessings and benefits There's the blood sacrifice, and then finally, a shared meal. Now, a lot of times, if you you ask people, well, how is this new covenant new? What does Jesus have to do with the new covenant? I think most people say, well, he was the blood sacrifice. And that's basically the only part that, that he plays here. And then the rest of it has to do with us. But really, the exact opposite is true. Jesus has to do with all five parts of the covenant that we're going to look at because see the 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 new covenant has all those same five parts but what makes it new is what those parts are you still have representatives of both sides a divine side and a human side but jesus steps in for us as the human side of the covenant and that affects the second part the binding oaths You still have those as well, but what's different about that is that there are no oaths for you and I to keep. 
the binding oaths are made between the father and the son. The son pledges to live in perfect obedience to the father. And the father pledges to highly exalt the son over all things. The son pledges to always say no to Satan and yes to the father. And the father pledges to not withhold any measure of the Holy Spirit from the son. And to give him all authority in heaven and earth. The son never breaks his oath. Even as sweat drips like blood from his brow in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is committed to keeping his oath to the Father. And he prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And even under the most shameful form of death itself, the Son keeps his oath to the Father. Philippians 2, 8 says, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All the way to death, the son keeps his oath to the father. And then what follows verse 8 there in Philippians 2 is how the father in turn then keeps his oath to the son. Verse 9, for this reason also, what reason? For the reason that the Son kept his oath to the Father, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Remember what Jacob said about Judah? Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When Jesus announced on the cross, it is finished. He was announcing to all the cosmos that the new covenant has been completed, signed, sealed, delivered forever, never to be broken. Do you see how freeing that is for you and me? I mean, my gosh. The next point, the new covenant doesn't hinge on how faithful you are to it. It hinges on the faithfulness of Jesus. There is no more drama between an unfaithful people and a faithful God. The drama was between the Father and the Son. There is no more wondering whether or not the new covenant will be kept. It has been kept. There is no possibility that it can be broken because it has already been kept and been made complete and finalized in Jesus. He has risen from the dead and taken his rightful place on the throne at the right hand of the Father, only to step down one more time to earth, not to make a new covenant, but to reap the rest of the benefits of this one, the final destruction of Satan, the full consummation of history, and the restoration of all things to himself. But you have to ask, well, where do we fit in there then? I mean, we know that this new covenant has something to do with us, right? You bet it does. And where we come in is the third part, the promises of blessings and benefits. And this is where the magnitude of God's grace is just so beyond us. It doesn't even make sense to our human minds because this is not the way that we treat each other. This is not the way that we relate to and operate with one another. But the thing is, we aren't held accountable or responsible to uphold 
our side of, or the human side of the covenant with any binding oaths. That's what Jesus came to do. But yet we are still granted the blessings and benefits of it. We don't deserve that. That's the definition of grace. Getting what you don't deserve. I mean, it almost sounds too good to be true. But it is true. Here's a good illustration of how it works. The house that I own was purchased essentially with a covenant between me and the bank. They pledged to let me live in the house and to claim it as, as my own for me to claim ownership of it. And in return, I pledged to pay them a certain amount of money every month. Now, there will be harsh consequences if either side fails to live up to the agreement uh, on their side of the covenant, especially for me. I mean, if I ha- fail to uphold my end, then I'm going to lose the house. But I'm not the only one involved in this thing. The rest of my family is also affected by this. My kids get to enjoy the promises and the blessings and the benefits of this covenant even though they are not held responsible to uphold any pledge or any binding oaths to it. They didn't do anything in order to receive these benefits. There was not one time that I saw any of my four kids fill out any of the mountain of paperwork that was required to fulfill this covenant. They have not done anything to earn enough money to ensure that we are able to fulfill our pledge of the amount that we are supposed to pay every month. They haven't done a thing to be able to receive the blessings and the benefits of the covenant that has been made. They don't have to do anything to ensure that it is kept. But they get to enjoy the benefits of it just as much as I do. They don't have to worry about losing the house because they just trust that their father is going to uphold his end of the agreement. Be faithful to the oaths that he made. And there's only one thing that gives them this right. Only one thing that gives my kids the right to enjoy the benefits of the covenant I've made with the bank without having to be responsible for staying faithful to any oaths. And it's simply the fact that they belong to me. They have my name. The simple fact that they belong to me gives them full access to all the benefits of the mortgage covenant. Next point. Jesus fulfills the human side of the covenant. Those who belong to him are granted the benefits of it. The only way my kids could lose the benefit of it is if I failed to live up to my obligation. But there's going to be a day when that's not even going to be an issue. When I make that final payment of that agreement, I'm going to receive a note from the bank that says on there, paid in full. And once that happens, I'm free from any more obligations to them. The covenant that was made between God and Jesus, between the Father 
and the Son that we get to receive the benefits of has already been paid in full. And so not only are you free from having to worry about whether or not you are being faithful at upholding the covenant on your part and coming through with any obligations, but neither do you have to worry about Jesus being able to be faithful to, to His, to anything that He has done. And the reason for that is because it's already been paid in full. Jesus doesn't owe anything else to the Father. Because the covenant has been paid in full. This is what he announced when he cried out from the cross. It is finished. And that's what makes Jesus' words in John 10, 29 so assuring when he was talking about those who belong to him. He said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Why? Because the, the covenant that purchased us has been paid in full. There's nothing else that is owed. And then the fourth part of the covenant was the blood sacrifice. And of course, what's new about this one is that it's no longer the blood of animals sacrificed on an altar. Jesus' blood was the required payment of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this, and I'm just going to read this passage and let it speak for itself because it is so powerful and full of so much good news. Just listen to this, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 4. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come. This is Jesus talking here in an Old Testament prophecy. I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. That is Jesus declaring his oaths to the covenant, to do the will of the Father. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law or the old covenant, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And I love this next part. Every priest stands daily. Talking about in the temple, ministering and offer time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them. He's quoting Jeremiah 31 here. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart. And on their mind I will write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, which Jesus has done... There is no longer any offering for sin. 
That's good news. <laughs> I mean, it's okay to shout about that because that right there really is as, as good as it sounds to be. There's no longer any offering. There's no longer any requirement on your part because Jesus met all the requirements. He did everything that was required in order for the new covenant to be ratified. He did everything for you that you couldn't do for yourself. Now, there's something else that makes the new covenant different from the old that's mentioned here in this Jeremiah 31 that's quoted also here in Hebrews 10. It's in verse 33 where he says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Under the old covenant, God's law was an external thing. It was the Ten Commandments written in stone. The only way for anyone to know how to live in a way that was pleasing to God was by reading those commands and, and knowing what they were. But under the new covenant, God, via the Holy Spirit, just takes his law and just downloads it, essentially, directly into us, in our heart and in our mind. In order to fulfill the law, the commandments had to be obeyed perfectly. But Jesus is the only one who did that. And it is his spirit that now lives in us. The spirit of the one who has fulfilled the law is in us. So therefore the fulfillment of the law lives in us. There's no longer anything left for us to do in order to fulfill it. Our lives are no longer about obeying a list of commands. It is now about submitting to and believing the truth of what God has done through his son. The next point, the old covenant was all about outward behavior. The new covenant is all about inward transformation. It's all about a heart change. If you can change somebody's heart, the behavior will take care of itself. Because our actions always reflect our heart. Man, that's something God's really been highlighting to me as a parent. You know, I'm realizing a lot of parents, I think we spend our time farming and cultivating behavior. When in reality, we're supposed to be cultivating hearts. If we can get our kids' hearts, man, we don't even have to worry about their behavior. And that sounds a lot easier said than done. Because a heart... It's a delicate thing. The Bible says, who can understand it? I can't, but it's also the thing that drives us to our knees because there is no power within us to be able to change a human being's heart. Only Jesus can do that. And so my role as a parent to do everything I can to point my kids to Jesus because he's the only one that can change their heart. And then the fifth part of the covenant, the shared meal. Disciples didn't realize at the time that they were taking part in the shared meal of the new covenant that last night that they were with Jesus before his death. And when he took the wine and said, this is the new covenant poured out in my blood, they had to be taken aback by that just a little bit because this was a phrase that they were familiar with, but definitely not in this setting. I mean, it seemed way out of place in this setting for Jesus to say that. Because it was a phrase that back then a prospective groom would say to his prospective bride as a marriage proposal. 
Both families would come together for a shared meal with the couple of the hour sitting directly across from one another. And after they spent some time getting to know each other, at some point in the meal, the, the prospective groom would stand up and everyone would get quiet and he would take the glass of wine and present it to the girl across from him and say, this is a covenant that I am making with you, that I am offering to you. And if she accepted his offer, she would take the cup and drink from it, and both families would cheer and celebrate, and then the wedding plans would begin. And so when the disciples heard Jesus say this, essentially in their ears, they were hearing him saying, will you marry me? But what Jesus was saying, what he was signifying in saying that, is yet another way that the new covenant is so much different than the old one. The old covenant was more like a contract with a strong commitment of both sides to carrying out these lists of of oaths and commitments and requirements that had to be fulfilled. But Jesus, by saying this, was signifying that the new covenant would be all about relationship. He was essentially saying that we would be joined to him the way that a bride is joined to her husband. Now, what held the old covenant together was the dedication to carrying out the obligations. But what holds a marriage together? Love. And that's what holds the new covenant together. Next point. The new covenant is held together by the love of God. It's not held together by your dedication and your seriousness and your commitment. It's held together by God's love. And if you still think that there's some chance that you can fail and lose the benefits of it, just listen to Romans 8, 38, and 39, knowing now that this new covenant is held together by God's love. It's one you're all familiar with. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If nothing can separate us from the love of God, and it is the love of God that holds the new covenant together, then nothing can separate us from the blessings and benefits of the new covenant. And I'll close with this last point, and this is a reason why the new covenant is the ultimate answer to shame. It's what keeps us from ever having to live again under a weight of of guilt and shame, feeling like a failure and a disappointment or that God is, is is mad at us and is withholding something back good from us because of something that we've done. Last point. Nothing can keep you from the blessings and benefits of God's love except the lie that says you must do something more to receive it. That's the only thing that's going to keep you, hinder you from living in and experiencing the blessings of God's love. The blessings and benefits of this new covenant in Jesus. The only thing that can keep you from that is the lie that says that you've got to do something more to get it. I mean, shame will always taunt with the lie. It's not good enough. You didn't do enough. The ultimate answer to that lie is the truth. The good news of the new covenant. 
Jesus came and did enough. It is the healing that you always needed. Everything that was required to be good enough, Jesus did it on your behalf. And so, you know what the only thing is now left for you to do? It's to receive it. Just receive what he's done. Believe it. I mean, God just wants us to receive what he has done and trust him. Now, next week, we're going to look at something else Jesus says when they were around that table. And it's another way that shows us that everything has changed now. And it is so good. Let's pray. Lord, you never cease to amaze me. And God, you are so multifaceted that we'll never see all of you in this world. God, the treasures of your goodness are, are so vast and so deep that we'll never, we'll never discover it all. I thank you, God, that you've given us all of eternity to try. And Lord, it is so good when we are able to discover a, a new truth. And Lord, I pray that that would be the case for somebody in here today, God, that there's something that was said that they needed to hear. God, if there's any vestiges of shame that is still lingering on someone, somebody's still wrecked with the thought that they're not good enough, that they haven't done enough, that there's still more to do, God, I pray that you would just... Wash that away right now. And the truth of what Jesus has done. God, this stuff is so far beyond us. Lord, we can see now why you said in Isaiah 55 that our ways are not your ways. Your ways are so much better, so much higher. God, your grace is greater than we can comprehend on our own. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come right now and make this truth come alive in us. Lord, that you would bring the heart change to somebody in here that you desire to bring about. Lord, you've done enough for us to praise you for eternity. So, God, now as we receive your goodness, Lord, we ask that you just receive our praise and our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.